This episode of The Science of Survival is brought to you by BioLite Energy, a company transforming the way we cook, charge, and light our lives off the grid. Last time, I was stuck on my porch in a power outage, but now the power's back on, and I'm making hot dogs on the BioLite grill that came with my camp stove. If you're wondering whether the entire ad is going to be spent listening to a hot dog sizzle, the answer is yes. And this week only, BioLite is offering a very special free gift to listeners of the Outside Podcast. Go to BioLightEnergy.com outside, and you'll get a free PowerLight Mini with your order. It's like a little flashlight, but it clips to things. I use mine as a bike light, but it's really versatile. A $45 value, yours, for free. Head on over to BioLightEnergy.com outside, and enter code FREEMINI at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Health IQ, a company that rewards your knowledge of healthy living with lower rates on life insurance. And since this is a survival show, we thought we'd share some of their findings on how not to die. If you're a runner, their data shows a 30% reduction in mortality right there. Cycle more than an hour and a half a day, 28% reduction. Vegans are 15% less likely to kick the bucket. Weightlifting will actually reduce your risk of mortality by 46%. So if you're a vegan, runner, cyclist, weightlifter, you're likely very attractive to insurance companies. And Health IQ can help get you a lower rate because of it. To learn more and see if you qualify, visit healthiq.com outside. That's healthiq.com outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. So Pete, how you feeling, buddy? Yeah. <laughs> Are you recording yourself? Red light on. Oh yeah. Talk, talking to the thing about how how your symptoms are. How are you? What are you feeling right now? I want to see if my symptoms mirror your symptoms. I think you can tell by my voice they do not. Your <laughs> symptoms do not mirror my symptoms. When we left off last time, I was in La Paz, Bolivia, with Dan Fatrell and Isaac Stoner about to head up Mount Illimani in search of the flight recorders from Eastern Airlines Flight 980. But we were at 13,000 feet and not feeling awesome. I spent most of the morning laying on the couch while you guys were packing for tomorrow, feeling achy and tired and achy and grumpy and tired. <laughs> Dan Fatrell is 33 years old, served two tours in Iraq, and before that he was the Gonzaga Bulldog, by which I mean he didn't just go to the school, he wore the mascot costume and danced at basketball games. I drank 15 cups of coffee and it felt awesome. And now I feel less awesome. Isaac Stoner is 31. He worked in biotech for a while and then went back to grad school at MIT. In fact, he'll graduate on the day we get back from this trip. He sort of rearranged his finals to be here. I feel like I have a cross between the flu and like, like I've stayed up all night. And I am Peter Frickwright, also 31, writer and outside podcast host, invited at the last minute by Dan and Isaac, and currently feeling the full effects of going from sea level to 13,000 feet. I feel like I got hit by a small bus. You seem to be like you got hit by a large bus. Yeah. We were here to look for the highest altitude plane crash of all time, 
which had gone down in 1985, and which Dan and Isaac had discovered one night after googling some other plane crashes and then wandering around Wikipedia. Over the last 30 years, a bunch of conspiracy theories had sprung to life around what caused the crash, because no one had ever found the plane's flight recorders, or even any bodies at the crash site. If this doesn't ring a bell, you should really go back and listen to part one. Also, I should take just a second here and let you know that there is more swearing in this episode than usual. Nothing outside the bounds of how some people normally talk, just a lot of it. Anyway, remember that the initial response to the crash was fruitless. For reasons of weather and altitude, all of the official searches failed to reach the crash site. Only one climber, a Bolivian guide named Bernardo Garacci, had even made it to the plane. And when he came down, he wouldn't talk about what he saw up there. But a few months later, a couple of private expeditions followed. One was financed by Ray Valdez, the flight engineer who would have been on the plane if he hadn't swapped shifts. His group found a shipment of illegal crocodile and snakeskins among the wreckage, but not much else. The other expedition was by Judith Kelly, whose husband had been killed in the crash. She was largely trying to show the NTSB that it was possible to get to the crash site, and put pressure on them to reopen the case. They did, but then the NTSB expedition was nearly its own disaster. Three investigators developed three different types of life-threatening altitude problems. They were lucky to get everyone off the mountain alive. Snow began to fall in the wreckage, and pretty soon it was buried. Once that happened, it became part of the mountain's glacier. So the mystery of Flight 980 has been dormant for close to three decades. It was only two years ago that former Eastern Airlines pilot George Jen published a book proposing that it was a bomb that took down the plane. And all the problems that investigators faced was the result of a cover-up by governments who had a lot to lose if the truth came out. His ideas gained traction among the small community of people still following news about the crash. But for Dan and Isaac, this was just an adventure. Then, just a few weeks before heading to Bolivia, Dan got an email from Stacy Greer, whose father had been in the cockpit after picking up the shift from Ray Valdez. She and Dan forged a bond pretty quickly. They had both been in the army and were both raised by a single parent. So just before Dan and Isaac left on their vacation, this trip became more than just a vacation. Families had been torn apart by this crash. Real people were paying attention and cared very much what they found. I joined up at about that same time, mid-April 2016. It was just a simple email from someone that knew Dan and Isaac, saying they were going to go on this really interesting trip. Maybe I wanted to go along. How's it going? Good time to meet you. Yeah, you too. Like a blind date. We saved you a seat, man. Thanks. We met up in the Miami airport on our way to Bolivia, and then our climbing guide, Robert Rausch, picked us up in La Paz. Our expedition cook, Jose Lazo joined up a few days later, and we all drove towards the mountain. I'm really hoping you spoke Spanish, Pete. Sorry. I, mean, I wish I, wish I did, too. Robert already knew about Flight 980 when Dan reached out to him. As a German mountain guide living in Bolivia for the last 20 years, he's pioneered more than 100 routes in the country, three on Mount Ilamani's south face. He'd seen the wreckage while scouting his previous climbs. Robert, what village is this? Jose Lazo doesn't say much. We don't share a language, so he's kind of the Chewbacca to Robert's Han Solo. 
that is, strong and silent, usually only talking to one person. Jose is Aymara, one of Bolivia's indigenous peoples, and he and Robert have been going on expeditions together for more than 15 years. They have tons of crazy stories, but they'd never gone hunting for a plane crash. Nor could they, until recently. It was only because of global warming that Mount Illimani's glacier had begun to melt and lose its grip on the crash plane. Glaciers flow downhill at a rate of just inches per year. But because 980 came to rest not far from the edge of a 3,000-foot cliff, the wreckage has actually been plunging over the side in icefalls and collecting at the bottom. And because rising temperatures had begun melting the ice at the bottom of that cliff, our search area wasn't actually the crash site, but a one-square-mile patch of glacial moraine at about 16,000 feet. We'd base camp out of Mesa Kala, an abandoned tungsten mine about a 45-minute hike away from the melting glacier. And because there was a road almost all the way to the mine, the plan was to drive there. Unfortunately, as we came around a corner, a massive 50-yard rock slide blocked the way. We were still two miles and about 3,000 vertical feet below base camp. And it looked like we were going to have to haul our gear up the rest of it. As we unpacked and tried to figure out what we could leave behind, Dan and Robert walked back towards a uranium mine that we'd just passed and rallied some help. What's that? Cinco porters, though. Really? To carry our shit out up the mountain now. Okay. But we still had way too much stuff. I'm trying to think if I need this. Stanley Livingston traveled. (laughs) (laughs) I need my uh, crocodile skin uh, box of rifles brought up the mountain. And really, I don't like to leave home without my antique chair. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we talked about uh, mules, but apparently they're all taken. So When we eventually got moving up the mountain, we came to a plaque embedded in the rock almost immediately. It was for Maria Celia Facetti Fernandez. And by the date of her death, we could tell that she was a passenger who had died in the crash. Oh, okay. This was her gravestone. It was also the first of what would turn out to be many sobering collisions on this trip. Because on one hand, a lot of people had died. Her family members must have come up here. On the other hand, this Bolivian alpine plane crash adventure mystery was a lot of fun. We're catching you, Jose. We're catching you. I call myself Jose B. Hey, we're catching you. You keep yelling his name, followed by a bunch of English. You're definitely going to catch him. Maybe you can tell from my breathing here, but I wasn't having quite as much fun. In our last episode, we went through what happens when someone tries to move to altitude too quickly. But now we were trying to move quickly at altitude. And to understand the particular way in which Mount Illimani is putting the hurt on us, we're going back to Brian Jones, pulmonologist and professor at Oregon Health Sciences University. In a very simplified sense, um, our body runs on a fire. We take oxygen in, we burn stuff up on it, and we exhale carbon dioxide. The process by which we breathe in air and use it to do things is incredibly complex. But what you need to know is that our cells have two ways to make energy. The first is by using oxygen. But in order to get it from the air and into our bloodstream, it has to cross a membrane in our lungs and then bind to something called hemoglobin. 
And the hemoglobin is this protein in our blood that it binds oxygen at a very high level and then allows the blood to become um, densely laden with oxygen, carry a tremendous amount of it, and then be whisked away out of the lungs and delivered into the tissue in the body. Once the oxygen gets to that tissue, the cells consume it, along with sugar, which creates CO2 as a waste product. The CO2 then binds to the hemoglobin and goes back to the lungs where you just breathe it out. But here's where things get interesting, because as we breathe out CO2, it changes the blood's pH balance. This increases the hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen. Your blood starts to want more of it. And the more oxygen your blood wants, the more will move across that membrane in your lungs. Sort of like how adding fresh water will pull more tea out of a tea bag. In a sense, breathing out is the most basic mechanism we have for adapting to altitude. And there are a couple of ways to manipulate that reflex. Ever since we landed in La Paz, we've been taking a medication called Diamox, which is the standard altitude drug. You can get a prescription at any travel clinic. Scientists aren't exactly sure how it works, but Joan said most people think that it interacts with the brainstem, which tells your body to get rid of more CO2. So our brains are, brain stems in particular, are very keyed into uh, what's going on in our body and will adjust how our breathing um, works. Um, Diamox probably gives us additional respiratory stimulus in our brain to continue to breathe. So as your body breathes more, it exhales more CO2 and makes the blood more alkaline. More alkaline blood likes oxygen more, so it pulls more across the membrane in your lungs. Another way to tell your blood to become more alkaline is to simply go up. Climbers trying to acclimate to a higher elevation do a sort of stair step up the mountain, going up, coming back down, going up even higher, and then coming back down, but not all the way. It's a process of um, driving some of those metabolic adaptations and making sure you're optimally poised to have blood that is somewhat alkaline when you get to higher altitude to be able to maximize the oxygen saturation. Of course, sometimes you do still use up all your oxygen. Which brings us to the other way that your cells create energy, going anaerobic. When we go anaerobic, it means that our cells make energy without using any oxygen. It sort of makes everything worse. It comes down to exchange rates. When we do burn oxygen to make energy, we get 30 units of it for every sugar molecule. And the waste product is CO2, which you just breathe out. When we make energy without oxygen, we only get two units per sugar. And the waste product is lactic acid, which takes much longer to get rid of. And it's the stuff that makes your muscles sore. So it's a terrible trade. Your body really doesn't want to do it. But it also doesn't want to get left behind. If I push too hard, I get dizzy. Everything just starts to sort of burn like you're sprinting, going about this fast. It took us four hours to go two miles. By the midpoint, I was leaning on my trekking poles and stopping to rest every few steps. Oh, we're leaving the road. I like the road. Why are we leaving the road? When we finally made it to camp, we dropped our packs on the ground and curled up next to them, just sort of staring at the blue sky and enjoying the sensation of oxygen delivery. When we did finally lift our heads, we saw that the site consisted of building ruins formed out of stacked rocks. The south face of Mount Ilamani loomed above us to the north. Looking the other way, 
We had a condor's view of mountains beyond mountains and daily flights cruising towards La Paz at what was basically eye level. Because of our unscheduled four-hour climb, it was too late in the day to hike to the debris field. So we set up camp and scrutinized the tiny plane parts that had been brought down from the mountain. This has got the little CO2 canister yeah, right there. That, yeah, that's exactly what that no, is. No, that's a CO2 canister from a life jacket. Yeah. We were excited. Yeah. Remember, when Dan and Isaac dreamed up this trip, it was a chance to do something adventurous, unique. Hey, I mean, look at this. It might be worth going over like this area with five years covers this afternoon. They were testing yeah. themselves yeah. against a challenge. They weren't here to solve conspiracy theories or criticize crash investigators or kickstart a new inquiry. They just knew that a plane had gone down and the black box was never found. People had died and no one had never brought back any bodies. This trip started out as basically a treasure hunt. And the next morning, the hunt was on. We hiked up to the edge of the moraine, which is like a valley carved out by the glacier. Tried to find a path down. It's this crazy floodplain valley on the bottom of this really steep moraine. It's like a ridge. Now we've got to go down somewhere. We've got to go down somehow. So this is like a 75 degree slope down on the bottom of the valley. It was steep enough and, uh, that we thought about roping up. We don't seem to be tying in. We're just going to go. In retrospect, we probably should have. That's a hell of Sorry. Let the audio recording show that Pete almost just killed Jose with a boulder the size of my torso. Sorry, Jose. <laughs> my bad. smash you with Rocco. Did I get it? Fluent. He nailed it, man. Eventually, we made it. We were in 980's debris field. The flight recorders could be anywhere. You guys looking around? Looking around, bro. Keep your head on a swivel. Head on a swivel. We were just sort of walking around aimlessly, scrambling over rocks and tiptoeing across patches of ice. But we found some really extraordinary stuff almost immediately. Shoes, luggage, seat rests, a nearly pristine emergency exit slide, and an almost unbelievable number of crocodile and snake skins. There were just a ton of skins. Then, about an hour into the search, things got really interesting. So I didn't get that. Could you go again? Yeah, I just had a roll of magnetic tape. Seriously? Seriously. Before setting out, we'd done some research and knew that the flight recorders would have been bright orange and rectangular. Beyond that, we weren't sure. Eastern Airlines has been out of business since 1991 so there wasn't anyone we could ask about it. Today, most flight recorders are made from a blend of titanium and steel, but black box specs weren't as uniform in 1985 as they are today. Some wrote data onto a kind of steel foil because it was more resistant to water and heat. Others recorded a magnetic tape, and Dan had just found some. I started hiking towards Dan to take a look. Right at that moment, however, a massive block of ice dropped off the mountain. Oh wow, look at it come. It picked up speed as it fell, and then bloomed outward into a sugary white cloud.
The ice falls were coming directly from the saddle, near the summit, where the plane came to rest. It was like a reminder that even though we had a ton of wreckage to search through, there was no guarantee we'd find what we were looking for. Plane parts were still falling. But eventually, I made it over to Dan to look at the magnetic tape. Wait, so let me see. It's either, it's either it's from one of the black boxes, or it has a great 1985 movie for <laughs> in-flight viewing. Did they watch movies back then? It's going to be like Starsky and Hutch or something. Can I see it? Yeah. Be careful, it's in pieces. Yeah, yeah. We can build our own plane with all this stuff. This is pretty incredible. Isn't it? That, is, that it's here. What the fuck else could it be from? I don't know. It was interesting, but we didn't know quite what to make of it. How do you react when you find something potentially, but not necessarily mind-blowing? If you're Dan, you make jokes. I'm just breathing hard because I like to breathe, Pete. Not because I'm weak. Out of breath. It's pretty much Dan and Isaac's standard solution for any problem. And it's contagious. There's plenty of air up here. I can hear it in my recorder. <laughs> I just can't breathe it. <laughs> I just I just can't breathe enough of it. But jokes aren't all that useful a few minutes later, when Robert finds the first body part. All right, so Robert just yelled out across the debris field. Hey, Robert, but... uh, Robert found some bone and some skin in front of her body. Oh, my God. Yeah, come on now. Where do you see? Yeah, yeah. It's It's a bone fragment with skin, muscle, and fat hanging off it like a flap. You might just be able to fit it all in a shoebox. The bone itself is about 14 inches long. Yeah, right there. That's a uh, hip bone. Top of the femur. Judging by the state of the tissue, it was probably only melted out of the glacier and exposed to the sun a few months before we found it. Is this meat? This is me, guys. Yeah, it is. Oh my god. The most radical conspiracy theory surrounding the crash is that a bomb took down the plane. But the only piece of physical evidence supporting that idea was the lack of bodies. By finding this one, we'd put a serious hole in the theory. But we weren't really thinking about that at the time. We were thinking about how we were now responsible for the burial of someone we'd never met, couldn't positively identify. For the most part, we were expecting to find bodies. We weren't expecting it to feel like a kind of emotional trespassing. Say some words? What do you do? But the feeling became more and more familiar. I guess so. Because we kept finding bodies. Oh boy. Yeah. Those are vertebrae. It is what that is. Those are vertebrae. In all, we found the remnants of six bodies in the debris field. Each time we buried the body part and stacked rocks on top as a marker. You dig the next one. Okay. What is this? 
Oh, that is finger. Thumbs. There's more here. Oh, under your under your left foot, Dan. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, oh yeah. Geez. Oh my god It wasn't fun But then once we dug a small grave And marked it We went back to searching and mystery solving And the trip became kind of master class In gallows humor What do you think this is? It looks like a whip, doesn't it? Yeah Maybe somebody was in a little S&M on the plane, huh? You never know He's recording you (laughs) You know I have a little sense of humor. He buried a... He buried some vertebrae. He buried the first vertebrae 30 seconds ago. If you can't laugh, you're going to cry. I'm with you. We were still exploring the search field, trying to figure out where we wanted to concentrate our efforts the next day. It seemed like the higher we went up the mountain, the more interesting the plane parts became. Especially when Isaac ventured really far up and found a scrap of destroyed orange metal that matched one Dan had found earlier. It was hard to tell, but it looked like it could have come from a flight recorder. Color's right. Um, No identifiable writing to speak of. But if Dan thinks he found a piece too, we'll probably spend the rest of the evening obsessing about how they could be pieces and how Dan's tape could have fit in. But I was skeptical. The flight recorders were supposed to be indestructible boxes, and this orange scrap was completely trashed. You couldn't tell what shape it had been, and it was made of aluminum, a fairly soft metal. Why would you make a black box out of aluminum? It just didn't feel right. Hey, Dan, we're, we're getting a little cold. We're going to head down towards the packs. How you doing? Nice, Dan. He's up, up top. Hey, uh, yeah, I'm getting cold, too. We went back to camp and spent a rough night in our tents. Altitude makes exertion more difficult in the moment, but it also makes recovery more difficult afterwards. Since oxygen is a limited resource, and your whole body is competing for it, blood gets diverted away from non-essential functions, like digestion. So it can oxygenate stuff like your brain and heart muscle. We're actually right at the altitude where studies show the human body starts to lose the ability to absorb fats. So nothing we ate really settled. At night, our breathing got weird. The impulse to breathe is triggered by the buildup of CO2, not a lack of oxygen. But you need to process oxygen in order to produce CO2. So our bodies are having trouble figuring out how much of each one we needed. In one of the situations which that shows up at um, high altitude is particularly at nighttime. You'll just uh, observe this phenomenon in, in your tent mates called chain stoic respirations, in which you'll hear people sort of start breathing heavier and heavier and heavier, then sort of decrescendo on the other side and go through this long pause of apnea and then start breathing again and again. When it's bad, the cycle can repeat every 30 seconds. And every time it happens, you wake up. It wasn't that bad for us, but we were still tired the next day as we headed back to the debris field. Yesterday, the record seemed to get more interesting the higher we went. So today, we climbed straight up the mountain until Robert and Dan find another tiny orange piece of metal buried way down in some ice. Careful. Be careful with your knees and stuff. Yep. They started swinging a pickaxe to get to it. And then Dan decided not to ever do that again at this elevation. I'm tired. Yeah. Good. I'm going to catch my breath for a minute. Yeah. The upper glacier was thick with plane parts, 
You can hardly sit and rest without finding something aviation-related in the rocks at your feet. I find the cabin altimeter sitting among a lot of other wreckage from the cockpit. Jose and Robert find one of the pilot's jackets, still half-buried in the ice. By lunchtime, we're all thoroughly exhausted. But as we head back towards the spot to eat lunch, Isaac finds something totally out of place. A green bundle of fabric wrapped up with white yarn and still partially frozen in the ice. Later that night, Dan and I sat down to talk through what had happened. You know, we found that thing. At first, Isaac came came upon it. We found a weird sack tied together with yarn. I think I saw Ziploc bags in there. You know, we read George Chen's book, and he talks about, you know, cocaine being smuggled on these planes. Drugs? And so I thought, oh, maybe there's legitimately some cocaine hidden in here. What is this? And then when it was a book, or or it was a book-sized worth of paper. Whoa! This is like the flight log shit. Oh, what? It's like the, uh... I still didn't really understand what I was looking at. No, hold on, hold on. It's somebody's, like... There's like a kid's toy in there. I mean, it could be from the... Like Looks a, like a pilot. Like a talisman, no? Hold on, hold on. What's on the back here? Something yeah. broken or... Looks like a crayon, maybe? I can't tell. But uh, as we talked it through, it's like, oh. It's uh, Judith. This is what Judith left at the top. Judith. Judith. It's a diary. June 10, 19... No, Judith? She was the one yeah, that came up here. Judith Kelly, you might remember, lost her husband, Bill Kelly, in the crash. Her expedition to the summit was less an investigation than a pilgrimage to say goodbye. She wrote and collected letters to Bill, and when she got to the plane, spent a whole day in her tent, reading them out loud. I saw a comforting film and brainstorm the scientist was able. This is a letter to him. Yeah. Yeah. When she was done, she wrapped them up and buried them in the snow, probably not thinking that one day they'd be discovered by five strangers. That kind of got to me. Yeah, I told you guys I was irritable, but I just needed a moment. Uh, it was just the uh, the grief um, that she felt. Uh, you know, she, um, you know, person I don't know, an event that I you know only read about, um, and she hiked up this fucking mountain and dug a hole, put it in there, and. Uh, and you're just thinking about, you know, there's like moments of grief in your life that are bad and private. And, uh, you know, I just <laughs> kind of had a moment and cried to myself. Um, just kind of feeling that grief. I think Dan and I had very different emotional responses to that. That made me feel good. Like, okay, there was an emotional connection here. And these people weren't forgotten. They did have loved ones who, who still think about them. Um, and Judith was, was one of those people. And so did you feel like um, like actually good? I don't think so. I mean, I, I still, you know, I, I'm still unclear on, on what it is we're doing here. It's a heck of an adventure, and it's a beautiful I'm, – I'm staring out at the, the last little bit of sun, sunlight over 10,000-foot – Mountains in the Andes, you know, this is a, a great adventure here. Um, what are we actually trying to accomplish has been something I have been having a hard time with since the beginning. Um, I would have told you, I think I probably did tell you 
a couple of days ago. I don't really care about finding the black box. I don't think there are any conspiracy theories here. I don't think there are answers to be had. If we can maybe find, you know, bodies or human remains or something, that might be important for victims' families. And and so we've done that. That feels good. Um, the, The odd thing for me is I find myself becoming more and more obsessed with actually finding uh, an intact black box. So uh, we were trying to estimate how much of the wreckage field we had actually gotten eyes on at this point, and I think we came up with something between you know, 10 or 20 percent. It's entirely possible there's a, a, a complete yeah. black box still out there yeah. for us. The next day, Isaac's caught between the effects of altitude and what looks a lot like gold fever. He's practically running around the search field and popping out of the radio with suggestions. Dan and I lag behind. We are running out of energy, both physically and emotionally. Dan's first find of the morning is a human neck. The glacier has melted down around it, so it's just sort of sitting on the ice. It has what looks like a dog tag embedded in it. For a moment, he gets excited, thinking he'll be able to identify the body. But when he digs it out, it's just another piece of shrapnel from the crash. Yeah, I don't think it's a dog tag. I think this is just a, uh, this unlucky guy. God, that's muscle fiber. Uh, this unlucky guy got some playing metal straight to the neck. Maybe you can hear it in his voice. Dan's moving pretty slowly. He's got a cough that's getting worse. (coughs) If you remember from the last episode, how the lungs shut off blood flow to the parts that aren't doing so hot, well, that process increases blood pressure in the working parts of the lung and can damage those capillaries. Now, Dan's body is sending fluid as part of the healing process, but that fluid is making it harder for oxygen to diffuse into his blood. It's like the membrane in his lungs is getting thicker. Over the course of the day, Isaac slowly runs out of steam as well. At lunch, he wanders 150 yards to his gear, barely makes it back to the group. When we're done eating, Dan plops down next to an engine. I sit down next to him. It seems like it might be time to give up. So while you're doing that, do you mind sort of just telling me what's going on? I mean, we've all but stopped searching for the box. Uh, I mean, we haven't stopped searching for the box. In this moment, we're investigating the engine out of curiosity. Um, uh, my stomach doesn't feel good. My head doesn't feel good. And I had lunch, and I thought that was going to fix it. And so we're about to head up, and I told you... Hey, I'm just going to sit here for a minute near the engine. So now we're here, both here, sitting at this engine. Mainly because I don't feel 100% physically. We all sort of knew this moment would come. That the chances of us actually finding the flight recorders and solving this thing were pretty low. But it's still hard to swallow. And instead of heading home, Dan and Isaac spent an hour digging up a metal beam sticking out of the ground. Why did you guys decide to do this? I don't know, I started digging. Tired of looking. It seems like some kind of final act of defiance towards this mountain and mystery that's defeated them. They want to go home on their own terms. Fuck! Nothing there. 
But then, as they finish, something happens that changes everything. We've actually given up by this point, and we're walking back to camp. But as we pass a spot about 10 steps from where we had lunch, Isaac investigates a piece of metal with his boot, and it's another one of the mysterious orange scraps we've been finding. But it's bigger than most of the others, and there's a label on one of the wiring harnesses. Wow, dude. Where did you see that? Right there. Talking Cops voice, voice, voice recorder. recorder. Fucking found it. Right there. That means all those pieces of the black box. We did give up uh, about five minutes ago. That was lucky. So this matches the other four or five pieces we have in camp now. Which means uh, we got a lot of pieces. See this over here. We are honestly too exhausted and physically miserable to make much of a fuss. Well, I gotta, I gotta ask, like, I mean, this is like the culmination of your entire trip. And... <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, it's cool. Uh, it is cool. It's, it's very cool. We gave up. Roller coaster of emotions continues. Isaac and Dan will describe it later as feeling anticlimactic. But our search is over. We found human remains, six pieces of what is almost certainly the black box, and a roll of magnetic tape that looks more and more like it did come from inside one of the flight recorders. We now know that the passengers weren't sucked out of the cabin by a bomb, and that the flight recorders weren't stolen by Bernardo Garacci, as some folks had suggested. And this is still a long shot, but there was a chance that someone would be able to analyze the magnetic tape and tell us why Flight 980 crashed in the first place. What we didn't know is that by finding the flight recorders and bringing them home, we'd be complicating a situation we had no idea even existed. But maybe we should have seen it coming. Because back when Dan and Isaac started this whole thing, it was basically a treasure hunt. And whether you find it or not, real treasure almost always comes with unseen complications. Petty arguments, grudges. That is, it figures out a way to break your heart. That's next time, in part three. This episode of The Science of Survival was produced by me, Peter Frickwright, with music by Robbie Carver. Thanks again to Ellie Hurdy for scientific guidance and Bill Rubluski for help in Bolivia. Jonah Ogles edited the print version of the story. Thanks to Dan and Isaac for convincing me not to sit and wait at the base of the cliff to record the sound of an icefall. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but you do lose a couple IQ points at altitude. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance and anaerobic metabolism. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. Hey, Pete. Yes. How long are you going to there before we start looking for you? Uh, maybe like 45 minutes. Let me just, let me just say back to you what you're doing. You are by yourself, staying at the high end of what we've established is safe, on a glacier, waiting for snow to fall towards you so that you can capture the sound while the rest of your party is far away. That's 
what you're doing. Does that sound right? Yeah, okay, just give me like 15 minutes.